Welcome to the 182nd installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. For many years, West Central Minnesota farmer Dan Jenigas saw government wildlife refuge areas in his community as a threat to his livelihood. That's because the land was pretty much off-limits to cattle producers like him. That restriction made sense to refuge managers who felt that the less disturbed grasses, forbs, and other perennial vegetation were, the more natural habitat would be available for producing ducks, geese, and other wildlife. The trouble is, such lack of disturbance eventually allows invasive species to take over the land, severely reducing the quality of the habitat. Meanwhile, farmers who raise livestock on grass are forced to stand by and watch as more of this critical resource disappears in their community. This is particularly frustrating in an area where an increasing amount of pasture is being plowed up and planted to annual row crops like corn and soybeans. However, in recent years, wildlife refuge managers have come to recognize the benefits of using livestock to help improve grassland habitat on public lands. Part of the change in attitude is due to the innovative grazing systems farmers like Genegas are utilizing to get more forage production out of fewer acres while leaving more grass behind. Various forms of what's called managed rotational grazing are making it possible for farmers to produce cattle and other livestock at a lower cost while improving soil health and the resiliency of grasslands, which is good not only for wildlife but also water quality. These days, Genegas rotationally grazes not only his own land but a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service waterfowl production area next door. J.B. Bright, a refuge specialist for the Wildlife Service, works with Genegas and several other livestock producers in the region to utilize grazing as a habitat management tool. Such a partnership not only benefits natural habitat on the refuge land, but also takes pressure off the pastures owned and rented by the livestock producers. That provides community-wide environmental benefits that cross public and private boundaries. The Land Stewardship Project is working with farmers like Genegas and natural resource professionals like Bright in Minnesota's Chippewa River watershed, to develop profitable ways for getting more continuous living cover established on agricultural lands. Through the initiative, called the Chippewa 10% Project, LSP has teamed up with the Chippewa River Watershed Project, as well as several other partner organizations and groups. At the heart of the project is our work with farmers in the Simon Lake area of Pope County, who are seeking ways to balance economic and environmental sustainability. A recent Chippewa 10% field day on the Genegas farm showed what happens when such a balance is struck utilizing an innovative system like managed rotational grazing. After the field day, I chatted with Genegas and Bright about using livestock to profitably improve grasslands and how such a system doesn't just produce good grass, but also better relationships between farmers and natural resource professionals. Genegas started out by describing a change he's made to his grazing system that he and Bright are very happy with. We were today here. We were here at a field day at, at, at your place, Daniel. We saw some of the things that you were doing, and then we also talked about different ways of using well-managed grasslands and, and well-managed grazing to kind of get a lot of benefits, uh, both for the farmer and for wildlife habitat and water quality and, and that type of thing. And I was wondering, Daniel, if you could talk a little bit about 
some changes you had made on a place that we had looked at. It, it was. It sounds like you've been able to increase your productivity and in a fairly short amount of time. But talk about some of the things you did as far as the cover cropping and the pasture improvement and then changes in the paddock system that you've been using. It was a, a parcel of land that my dad owned, and he rotational graze it in four pastures. Um, I switched it over to an 18 pasture system, dug water lines in, so I had water sources for each pasture. It's 189 acres there that I purchased, me and my wife, Linda. Pasture land's very hard to come by. Just trying to make the land more usable to create more income without taking away from everything else. Years past, it used to be this, what, in the 50s, I believe, was soil bank. It, it was very rough with gopher mounds sodded over. So we've taken some of them and uh, worked them up, put cover crops in them just to not take away from the grazing on it. And in return, the cover crops actually improved the soils and made better seed beds for when we're reseeding them now. And now this summer and this fall, we're going to do some warm season on it. So we have a lot more diversity for the different uh, stages of the grasses. So we shouldn't get no big lulls in the, the grazing systems. I've already noticed a lot more birds, a lot more insects, uh, more deer. And I haven't taken nothing away from the cattle and I've added more cows than I used to when the place was 289 acres. So, um, so far I'm very happy with it, how it's going. Well, it used to be 289 total acres, now it's 189. And we went from 65 cows to 85 cows. And we still have grass left at the end of the year. And so that was doing that through, you had four, basically four different pastures or paddocks, uh, increasing it to 18. Can you describe a little bit about the system you're using, how long usually the cattle are on, and kind of that, that uh, timeline for your rotation? The pasture is roughly, each paddock or pasture has eight acres in it. And currently, 85 cows would graze on that for about five days. Basically, it's... Right in that two-thirds of the forage they eat and about a third is left that step down to keep the ground covered. And uh, it's been working really well. Was that hard to adjust? Um, I think it's tempting for a grazer to graze it down and get as much as you can out of there before you move those cattle. Was that kind of a hard adjustment for you? I would say it's maybe a little tougher than quitting, me quitting smoking. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I mean, it's, it is tough. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm used to grazing it or haying it. If it's there, you take it. And it's very, it's a really a mindset to, to, you know, realize that if I leave this, I'm going to gain, you know, something back for it. And within, you know, a year and a half, I've seen enough results to sell me on it. Yeah, and we really saw it today walking around. I mean, it seems like it's a more diverse pasture, and you had, you showed us a, one that had been grazed around July 4th. 
we've been we've had some pretty hot weather. We got a little bit of rain around the fourth, but it seems like it's really still got a lot of good feed value out there. Yeah, and I mean, right beside this is a U.S. Fish and Wildlife, and by by being able to utilize some of their acres part of the time has complemented this to make it that much more successful that much faster. Well, that's a good segue into talking to you, JB. I mean, one of the things that you emphasized when we were walking around Dan's pastures, and I guess the other thing I want to point out, we're here at another farm where we did a rainfall demonstration showing how much infiltration a pasture like his is getting and how it's really a boon to water quality and just making better use of that moisture that's coming in. But one of the points you made when we were walking around Daniel's place was how this really makes the point of disturbances, how important that is, that not just kind of the old school way of thinking is, say you got a wildlife refuge, the best thing to do is leave it alone, not do anything with it. Right. Uh, grasslands are disturbance-dependent ecosystems, so... Just leaving it alone is going to get you a lot of trees or sumac or woody vegetation or maybe a lot of non-native grasses that are sod forming. Waterfowl might still nest in them, but some songbirds won't find it attractive for nesting. Plus your uh, wildflower population, you know, density or whatever will will decrease. And we've found that uh, by burning, grazing, haying, you know, we just uh, increase the structural diversity across the waterfowl production area maybe even in the in the landscape uh, and then uh, maybe increase our our diversity of plant species too and more get more wildflowers usually with the grazing so i have uh, habitat objectives for the tools of fire grazing and haying i um, i work with usually the uh, close neighbor producer or whatever uh, in the case of Dan he borders this waterfowl production area we use targeted grazing so we'll target say uh, the cool season exotic grasses with an early graze and have fairly intense and then they move off um, and then on to Dan's you know other cases, we might just be trying to reduce the litter layer. That's all the old decadent vegetation. And uh, we can accomplish that almost any time of the growing season. Generally, we do kind of a short duration grazing, and then we'll let it rest for several years. A lot of times we see the benefits the year after and the year after and the year after and then it's probably built up again and we need to the litter layers built up again and we need to implement a disturbance and with as many areas as i have to manage almost 250 separate waterfowl production areas i need multiple tools uh to to get that kind of once every five years disturbance and in some areas don't lend themselves to burning because of highways and smoke and da 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 and burning is a kind of a, i mean you're in the mercy of the weather and whatnot and it takes a lot of staff and you know it it accomplishes things though for me that maybe i can't accomplish with the other tools they all have their pros and cons kind of you know or vice versa you know with grazing and the biggest limiting factor to us using grazing is a lack of infrastructure you know i i actually don't know how many of those 250 or almost 250 wpas we actually have fencing infrastructure on it's probably around 100 you know but i have an eight county district and uh it's a it's a wonderful tool for us and bean counter wise you know if they're looking at what's it cost well it's 
much more economical to use cattlemen, you know. And then, really, the, the community benefits, uh, the cattlemen benefits, you know, he's getting supplemental acres, and the economy benefits. So, wildlife benefit, you know, from having that disturbance and the structural diversity, and um, so it's a, just a win, 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 win. Well, the other benefit I could uh, attest to, I guess, I've been on, Daniel, on your place before where we've seen bobolinks and all sorts of wildlife and, and all of that. And I think you had mentioned this before is when you're grazing that public land, you're able to give your pasture a rest. And so that helps wildlife habitat and, and water quality benefits there. So you're kind of getting, in a way, a wider, wider environmental benefits beyond that refuge boundary it seems like yeah and i mean that's uh not only the beneficial to the cattlemen or this or that but it builds a relationship between the public lands and the cattlemen which years past it was not that it was more of a feud mm-hmm. it gives me a reason to accept some of these public lands in our community because they're they're wanting to be part of the community to not take away from us that's why I support the U.S. Fish and Wildlife for this is because they've been very active about grazing. That kind of public relations benefit must be another one for you, JB, to think about. Yeah, first and foremost is my job as an upland habitat guy is to walk across the WPA and and see it, see the needs. Okay, and then try and figure out how to meet those needs. Based on my experience in in the Dakotas, and uh, I mean, I'm a, not from a ranching background or anything, you know. And so I've kind of learned a lot on the job and gone to workshops and listened to people with a lot more experience or whatever, and absorbed all that. And, and I can accomplish what I need so much of the time with cattle or sheep or goats. You know, we use them all in situations. Another nice thing about grazing is that flexibility. Anytime during the growing season, you know, I might be able to achieve an objective. Whereas burning is kind of mostly a spring thing. You know, if we don't hit that right window, we don't get it, and it sits for another year. It's, we need cattle on the landscape. When there's cattle in an area, there's going to be perennial cover. There's going to be more hayland. There's going to be more pasture. And it's not it's just going to be sitting and growing up into woods. Well, and I think that's a good point, too, in that we need to make clear that so both of you guys have the same goal, which is grass, but you want that for different things. You want it for habitat, wildlife habitat. Daniel needs it for his cattle. So you kind of it takes a good relationship to kind of figure out. Uh, well, you know what? You're not you're not going to get to graze it. Maybe as short as you want, or as long as you want. And and you need to maybe look at his needs as well. That that, that kind of relationship building is that important? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, the first thing I learned was to to you know to be the unbureaucrat uh, and and to give them flexibility. You know and. If they didn't get in right on June 1st or whatever it was, you know, don't have a meltdown about it. If they get on by the 3rd or whatever, the 7th, you know, hey, they got them in. You know, it's not the end of the world. And these are natural systems. They don't operate necessarily by a calendar. You know, yeah, there's seasonal out, seasonality things, you know. But, but, you know, and on their end, too, it's an adjustment from we're not the typical um, landlord. I need to be communicated with. How many did you put in? When did you take them out? When did you move them? You know, those kinds of things i've uh you know i've got all the respect in the world for um 
cattle producers. You know, they're hard workers. It's a 365 day deal for them, you know, pretty much. And, you know, and unlike, say, a crop that you plant and you insure and everything, you know, it's they've got assets walking around out there that are kind of semi insured, you know. What about you, Dan? You, do you feel like you've had kind of just how you're going to graze those cattle when it is on the public land a little bit? Oh, some, but I mean, I think JB's a very unique person to work with. He's always willing to learn and listen, and he's also very able to fire right back at you to what he thinks and wants you to learn, which is wonderful. As far as adjustment, I don't know. I think you have to adjust every day because I probably have a hit of motive that doing this grazing with the 18 pastures is my hopes is someday they'll look at theirs and do similar where you put your cattle there the full season and you have 18 different stages of grass within one unit and i i really truly believe that's very beneficial to all the bugs and wildlife and pollinators and right on down the line and um, there's still more than enough cover for the species for the people to hunt. I'm kind of excited to see where it can go from here. You're now looking at taking some uh, native warm season grasses and seeding them in your paddocks and, and working with the Fish and Wildlife Service on diversifying your paddocks more to extend your grazing season through that warm that hot season when you usually can have a drag. Can you talk a little bit about that? That could be, it sounds like that could be a really exciting next step here. Yeah, I mean, that's one component that this pasture doesn't have is a, a uh, any one area that, that has very much warm season. And July and August, that's when these grasses grow the best. They're the most nutritionist to the livestock, but yet that's the slack period for all the cool seasons which is still very palatable for the livestock, but there's a lot of wildlife that can use them also. So then in time, you just hope more things show up in your area. And by doing this, you've never really taken nothing away from anything. You've just made it better. Um, I think right down from more wildlife habitat to better grazing to better water quality, and maybe more even important, it's a better example for what other people can maybe do. It benefits the soil when you have a, diverse, a, a greater diversity of plant species. I mean, look at prairie. It's The beauty of prairie is something new is emerging about every 10 days. That diversity builds resiliency. So if we can take what a field that is in this system that's currently being cropped. It was uh, bluegrass and um, not the most productive grass for that soil type and put natives there that are more adapted to drier soils and whatnot. And like he said, that time of year when the cool season go dormant, you know, this thing will just be bursting with growth. And, and when they're not in there and those flowers are doing their thing and the insects are doing their thing and the bird, uh, early in the year because that paddock will generally be rested it's going to be providing nesting habitat and all kinds of um, wildlife benefits so. for more on the land
land stewardship projects work to promote agricultural systems that are good for the land and a farmer's bottom line, see the Chippewa 10% page at www.landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org, or you can call 612-722-6377. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.